Let's get started. Uh, this is Colin Shots. I am Seth Partnow of The Athletic and Stats Bomb and other places, including this show. Um, this is a, 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 a sort of a new one for me. I've been mostly or completely speaking to people in and around basketball, with the exception of talking to Ben Lindbergh, who is in and around baseball, but writes for The Ringer, where many basketball people are. Um, joined today by Owen Ellickson, um, man about town in Hollywood and... Bucks fan, former Cavs fan, former Warriors fan. Is this all fair? Yeah, I, I just I, I, I'm an exhausting sort of narrative follower. Uh, I'm just a sort of contemptible. Uh, I'm gross. It's basically the easiest shorthand. Got sick of the Warriors when they signed KD. Jumped to LeBron. Jumped to Giannis. Uh, made my home there. But that's my deal. So I wanted to. I mean, I, I wanted to start in your backyard a little bit. Um, one of the th- weird things in the NBA is sort of title inflation. I mean, we there used to be just like general managers, and now there's GM, ball operations, and CEOs of whatever. Um, there's a, there's a term as I've sort of uh, through people like uh, Alan Sepinwall in particular, as I started following kind of prestige TV uh, more closely. There's a term that I don't really know what it means, and that's showrunner. And so you have a number of, of credits in your in your background, including producing and writing and co-exec producer and so on. Are any of those showrunner credits? What is a showrunner? What does the showrunner do? Please educate me. And then so we'll a show. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I I have been a showrunner. I've been in the business for oh boy, twenty one years. Uh, I was a sh- I've been a showrunner for approximately three months, I believe. A showrunner almost always has the formal title of executive producer, but there are many types of executive producers. Not all of them are showrunners. Usually there's one, two, the most I've ever heard of is three people who were sort of in charge of making all the creative decisions. The the closest analog to a showrunner in movies really is director. Um, The person who basically has the most global responsibility and control of a production. So usually that involves running the writer's room day to day, but it doesn't always. Um, and yeah, basically it is the kind of top dog. Um, I guess president of basketball operations would be the closest analog. <laughs> I'm usually sort of GM, assistant GM, something like that. So you were, you were an interim GM. Yeah, I would <laughs> say that's right. <laughs> so, um, so, so you're, I mean, uh, for, for folks that don't know, uh, Owen has, I mean, your, your background is completely in comedy. I would imagine that running the writer's room is probably a pretty central um, part of, of, of running a comedy show. Yes, that's safe to say. You got to be loud. You got to be social. Um, and there are a lot of interesting, I mean, you I obviously have navigated the politics of a front office before. Um, Writing is inherently political, even in, you know, I've been lucky to be in a lot of good rooms with good people that I was friends with, but there are still power dynamics you have to navigate and all sorts of things. When you're running a room, you kind of want people to be fun, but, you know, the, the, the more enjoyable and relaxed of an atmosphere you can create, the better, but you still need stuff from people. So you end up in this kind of forced cool dad mode that can be very douchey. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, I am a, an incredibly dorky overwrought dad. So, uh, my skill set is meshing pretty well over there. So what are, um, I, I, I'm staring at your IMDB credits, but, uh, people listening probably aren't. So what are some of the shows you've worked on and, and, and what, what are you most proud of? 
Well, the thing I'm most proud of on there is my height, 6'3", which I put on there myself. (laughs) Um, I started on a show called King of Queens back in the day, uh, was a writer's assistant, which essentially means uh, note-taker, proofreader sort of stuff. Uh, I did that for two years, was lucky enough to be promoted to being a writer, did that for four more years there, then jumped around. Let's see if I can name them all. Good Family, Friends with Benefits, The Office... Uh, a show called Other Space for Yahoo. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Superstore splitting up together. Rutherford Falls and Ten Year Old Tom. Those are my credits. Okay. Well, I also see uh, one EP credit, which is with the Craig Robinson show. Oh yeah, and I created a. <laughs> I, oh yeah. I had. <laughs> that's right. That I had a a classic network pilot experience with the lovely actor Craig Robinson. Uh, I created a pilot along with some other people. They did not pick up my version, but they picked up a version later that uh, apparently my name was on. So life in the big city, baby. (laughs) Is is that common where you, you, you just kind of, you do part of a project and then it it happens and, Oh yeah, this guy was, was there. So his name's got to be on the screen. Yes, absolutely. There's a famous story. um, There's an old show called Barney Miller from the seventies about, I believe a police officer. I've never watched much of it, but there was there were two people uh, developing cop shows, and I believe the network was ABC. And they had the guy who ended up creating Barney Miller, Danny Arnold, have lunch with this other guy. I want to say his name was Theodore J. Flicker. It was some very colorful name. Danny Arnold old met... Teddy Flicker. Yeah. <laughs> Teddy, old Teddy Flicks. Danny Arnold met with the guy. There was no vibe. He said, all right, whatever. I don't like this guy. I'm just going to make my own thing. But if it makes the network feel better, I'll put his name on it. So Theodore J. Flicker got a creator's credit on Barney Miller that ended up making him something like $30 million over the next 10 years. Um, so crazy shit can happen. That is certainly less likely to happen. People don't let eight figures sort of slide around as loosely anymore. But uh, yeah, there are definitely, I've been involved in productions where some of the top names are people I never saw once. Um, it's very amorphous and random and arbitrary how things can end up. Sure. Uh, no, it it, um, it it seems like a very kind of messy, like the, like getting credit seems like a very messy thing. I mean, we've kind of heard uh, maybe it was Matt Weiner who who uh, on on Mad Men just like wouldn't give writing credits to people or something like that, which seemed very like not not to ask, ask you to speak out of school or anything like that, but it seemed very like if you have the, I've always been of the notion that if you have a team behind you, you want them all to get credit instead of like no no one no one get, get, gets credit for me. I am the sole genius behind this. Absolutely, yeah. No, I've I've been lucky enough to never be on a show like that where the people running it insisted on giving themselves all the pieces of sub credit possible. I think that is gross as hell. Matt Weiner seems like a little bit of a boner. <laughs> but but that's how genius happens, right? No. <laughs> that's right. You got to be a boner. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, I don't know if there's a natural segue from that. To, to anyone else. Um, I probably became. I mean, I I became most familiar with you. Actually, you, you probably don't want to hear where um, it was. It was the uh, the fake commentary leading up to the 2016 election, which um, yeah, the fake conversations, <laughs> which were which were very funny until they weren't. Um, <laughs> What uh, do you want to talk about that at all, or do we just want to leave that in the past? Consignment? Oh, sh- oh, sure. Yeah, I I started doing during the 2016 campaign. I started doing these sort of faux dialogue series from within the Trump campaign, um, sort of out of you know morbid fascination by just the gross spectacle of it all. 
um, the sort of underlying premise of it was look at what we almost did to ourselves. But it turns out we went ahead and did it to ourselves. So it stopped being funny pretty quickly the night of November, whatever that was, 8th. Um, so I, I don't, I wouldn't say I regret it because like I was, a, you know, we raised some money for charity and stuff like that. Um, but uh, I am a little sheepish about it in retrospect. <laughs> Not something I will be revisiting. Sure. Um, and then I like from from there actually like you doing that was what that turned me on to Superstore, which is now like I mean, sort of a lot of these 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 vague these like I I don't like I know uh, uh, it, it's that is not a, a a kind of a sure universe show, but it is sort of of a piece with those. Yeah. Um. um and and so those are kind of the. Uh, those are the, the, <laughs> this is going to sound horrible, but those are like good bedtime shows. Um, <laughs> so it's in it's it's in the rotation among the like the like watch something amusing and fall asleep to it shows. But it it it, it quickly became one of my my wife's and I, my favorite shows. So um, how involved were you in like the creation of that show, or is that something you just kind of came on to what like co executive producer? <laughs> I, um, my friend Justin Spitzer created it, who I had worked with him at the office. So I, I really had no role in creating it. Um, I, you know, I was on it for most of the run and I would like to think I played a little bit of a role in, in how it ended up, but, uh, I can't take any credit for what it was, how it was conceived, anything like that. Yeah. That was a real pleasure, um, to work on. I think bedtime show is about as high praise as there is in my industry. So no, well, I mean, that. and, and, you know, you spent a lot of time on two of them because like the, the, it's everything from the office to, to, I, I can list what they are actually. It's the office in Brooklyn nine, nine and, and, uh, the good place and, um, uh, parks and rec and superstore. And I think that's about, that's, those are about the rotation. Yeah. That, uh, that's, so. that's, that's good company to be in. And I will, I will throw out a rec. I am not affiliated with this show, but, uh, uh, I mean, I do know people who work on it, but the show Abbott elementary that's on now, I would say is a great successor to those. Just a really good show. Um, strong recommend. It is on ABC, I believe, but I watch it on Hulu. I, I have, I have heard that's good. We've also started American auto this year, which we, which we've been, uh, been very amused by my boy Spitzer. Yeah. He's, he's back at it. Good stuff. Good. Went straight straight from Superstore to that. Yeah, love it. Um, so you you how does how does the I have a sense of how kind of the career progression of like sports management goes. Um, is is it something similar to that in sort of the creative side of of this, or is it much more? You're up, you're down. You're the low low person on the totem pole. You're back in. You're someone's doing you a favor and keeping you like, is there any sort of linear progression to that? Or is it just some days you're some days you're flush, some days you're bust? I think it's probably similar. I mean, I obviously can't speak with much knowledge to the sports management stuff. I've read about it, but I, you know, well, let me large, tell you, we, yeah. we, if you want, you can ask me some questions and we'll get. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll describe uh, how I sort of see the process of wading through the TV industry. And you tell me how similar or different it is. Um, it, you know, you really have to kind of hustle to get on the radar um, with the big caveat that luck and privilege play a role. I had both. Um, you know, I went to a 
fancy school where, you know, so some alumni of that school were on King of Queens. That probably helped me on the margins. Um, my script was on somebody's desk on the right day. You know, it, it's uh, it's very easy to tell yourself a flattering story in television that you're here because you're good. I think I am pretty good at the job, but I think a lot of people who were sort of in that soup in 2001 when I, you know, got plucked out of it were probably as good or better than me. So, um, but yeah, you have to sort of get yourself on the radar however you can. Once you're in, it is generally not, I wouldn't, I would say if you do well in your first job, then you'll probably have a decent run. If you don't do well in your first job, it can be tough. Um, what does doing well mean in this, in, in this, uh, in this context? That's a, that's a no, very no, no, good this is, question. I mean, this, is, this is, you know, this is, uh, there are, there are many people, I mean, the, uh, in, in, in kind of sports management, there's a lot of sort of Peter principle. Well, he was there when they were good, so he must've had something to do with it. Now we'll make him the head of scouting. Oh shit. Oh my God. There, that, I mean, the famous thing that happened. So I, uh, again, you know, my, I, I live and work in Candyland. I am so lucky. None of this is an actual complaint, but I came here, but please complain at the dawn at the dawn of the millennium, uh, and really the sitcom world was sifting through the wreckage of every writer who had ever been on The Simpsons and Seinfeld and Friends getting three million dollars a year to create whatever they wanted. Isn't a couple that, of those people, isn't that all of them, <laughs> yes, every writer has, yes. So uh, a couple of them made good things. Most of them did not because, of course, as you say. Not everybody in a room that makes special stuff is necessarily special and can make special stuff on their own. Um, Halo effects are a huge and often, you know, kind of negative uh, phenomenon in TV. So I, I think there are not things that cast quite as long a shadow as that. Those development deals were sort of transformative for the industry. And the writer strike in 07 was sort of the death knell for them. Networks and studios can, were so delighted to kill all of those deals. Can, can I can I all. can I put a pin in and ask you something? Sure. What's a development deal? I mean, I, I, I've heard the expression, but this is one of those things that it's like, it's it's like for in in sort of navel gazy stuff. It's played for laughs. Oh, a development deal. That's right. I'm not really sure what people are laughing at, other than like there's something faintly ridiculous about it. <laughs> well, it, it is the most amorphous of all the amorphous things. So essentially. There can be situations where you come up with an idea for a show. You pitch the show, maybe you write an episode of the show, and you try to sell that show. You sell it as what you're selling is that product, that show. A development deal is saying, this studio, this network just has your mind for two or three years, and they will pay you a lot of money to try to get things out of that mind. They are not paying for an individual product that you have created. They are paying for you. They have the exclusive rights <laughs> to you. So, uh, you know... Yes, <laughs> a little bit. So, you know, I mean, a lot of great shows have come out of development deals. Uh, you know, Spitzer was on a development deal when he created Superstore. Mike Schur has been on a development deal with Universal this whole time. Uh, it is how most of the good stuff gets made. Uh, it's how a lot of the bad stuff gets made. And a lot of stuff that never becomes anything gets made in them, too. So I am not currently on a development deal, but that is how they work. Well, for any any you know any Hollywood execs who are listening right now, you know, the the phone lines are open, so jump on and make offers. That, Hell yeah! What are that, we waiting for? <laughs> I'm going to start calling out listeners by name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just randomly hope that they are uh, 
That's right. Um, so I like not to bounce around a little bit, but you you were talking about the halo effect, and and um, this is sort of this is a, definitely a thing in like the sports world. Is there thing? Oh, that guy that guy worked for Bill Belichick. He must be able to coach like Bill Belichick. And like, yeah, That's right. Maybe not. Like sometimes there are some stylistic similarities. Some are not. Um, the one that always comes into mind. I mean. I mean, certainly your career that a little bit, like King of Queens, the the sort of the I, I I have to admit not being a religious viewer of that show, but I'm familiar with it. Like that is that is a um, probably a more down the middle kind of ethos than sort of the the kinds. You know, I listed my bedtime shows earlier. Like those are obviously like a, you know played for a certain amount more irony than yes. than. Um, so it's the, and I, I would imagine that all that the people in the room of King of Queens probably like there was something limiting about like being a down the middle like like sitcom. But that, that's not the that's not the point of the, the 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 strangest one I can remember is um, Sean. I, I was a big fan of the Shield and sure. Sean Ryan, the the showrunner of that, like came out of the writers' room of Nash Bridges. And yeah, it's just like <laughs> like this this very like you know hammy kind of typical network magnum pi wannabe kind of thing to like one of the main like progenitors of like the 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 anti-hero um those aren't those aren't the same things at all and it's like how does one come out of the other other than like i hate what i'm writing let me do the the exact opposite (laughs) but um I, I don't know. I didn't. Have, I didn't really have a question there. It was more of an observation. No, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think you know. I, I learned a ton on King of Queens because it was my first job, and and you know, I think there's skill in doing that kind of show well. That we always said that was. It's sort of an iconic. I think I saw it on the plane once. Show, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you learn different things at every stop. I would say, but there are definitely people. You know, I think Vince Gilligan, who created Breaking Bad had been X-Files, on right? X-Files, exactly. And I mean, I like X-Files, but that, the, the gap there is pretty big as right. well. Um, I don't yeah, know. I, mean, I, I feel like there's some, there's, there's, there, there are, there's some like tonal similarities. I, I want to say yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Like a little bit. Like they're, you know, like the, uh, the, the cousins in, in Breaking Bad, like have a little bit of a, of like an otherworldliness to it that didn't, doesn't not, um, Echo. No, that's right. Yeah. Breaking Bad actually does have a little bit of a sort of, you know, the things slithering around in the dark yeah. <laughs> vibe to it. Um, but yeah, no, I think it you, you can never predict what somebody will do when they get the ball, um, which is kind of exciting, but also leads to failures a lot, which I imagine is an, uh, an analog to sports management a little bit. Uh, that somebody who can be a very effective a part of a team, if they get the wheel, uh, sometimes it doesn't go as you might have projected. Um, so that's, I mean, I guess that's a, an interesting way to go there is I think a lot of it is probably just like timing. Like, you know, I, I feel like, I don't know if the office would work today. Yeah, I think that's um, fair. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's, although I, the office reboot with everyone working remote is, <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe that's a, maybe there's a reunion special there or something. Uh, but the, the, the number of all Zoom shows that have been pitched over the last two years is right. just boggles the mind. Uh, my take has always been, uh, aren't we all Zoomed out anyway? The last thing we need is for our entertainment to <laughs> get bogged down there, too. I saw, did, did you, there was a, uh, HBO made a movie. Uh, called I think it was called Lockdown, 
with uh, Anne Hathaway and 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 I always pronounce his name wrong. Chiwetel Ejiofor. Did I say that right? Did you ever see uh, that? I did not see that. I heard it was good. I, I, I mean, really, I think there are definitely yeah. interesting things that can be done with those constraints. I really yeah. like the movie Searching with John Cho that came out. That's, that predates the pandemic. I think that was four years ago. But it was all uh, taking place on a computer desktop. Yeah. No, I think that was a that was a pretty. I mean, that was that was a pretty successful uh, use of of like kind of the remote stuff to to get some uh, some claustrophobia going. Which I guess yeah, those of us uh, they didn't have, in the show. They did not have in the movie. They did not have children, but those of us with children over the last couple of years probably can relate. Oh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Where? What? What? What, what, what were you talking about before I interrupted? And took us off on this other path. Oh, I was just oh, talking about the yeah. phenomenon of it's always interesting to yeah. see how people who have been sort of part of a team do when they are all of a sudden leading a team. A team, in this case, being any sort of metaphorical group or project, not necessarily the Blazers or Bucks. So let's, let's, let's back all the way up. How did you decide that you were funny? <laughs> um, I don't know that I ever... I'm not... I'm not still not a hundred percent sold that I'm there. Um, I, you know, a friend of mine in high school decided he was funny and then kind of felt like maybe I was funny too. And I took his word for it. So we, we, we moved out to LA together. Um, and you know, it happened to work out for both of us, but I, I, it was not necessarily a dream that I had from a young age. I think for me, a lot of it is just that I really like, I'm a big hangout guy. Um, not to say I'm necessarily a good hang, but I'm a very common hang. Uh, and TV writing is a, one of the most social jobs you can have. It really is sort of like a day long conversation with a group of people who, you know, in comedy's case are generally pretty funny and interesting to listen to. So, um, I was on the humor magazine in my college and that was a lot of fun. That got me really interested in the craft. That was, I guess, the time that I really locked on that that was something I wanted to try to do for money if I could. Um, but I went, you know, I went to college planning to major in math. <laughs> like I was, I was not, this was not something that I like had all carved out uh, in my teenage years or anything like that. So that you, you, but if you'd have gone down that road, then you could have done like humor analytics because there's nothing that says funny. Like that's us. right. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it, it clearly it's, 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 it's how we got to know each other because yeah, like charts are funny. No, there you go. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I think we were talking about sort of the, 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 the progression. I, the, here's what is, is like, I, I kind of asked you what success on the first job looks like and that's how we went down the hole. So it, it, I think the, it, we were talking about the, the whole, okay, once you're in, are you in, in, and you were basically saying, unless you screw up royally. Um, I think unless you screw up royally, I mean, there's so many confounding factors. I, it's the the sort of metrics of success uh, don't really exist. So basically, you want the powerful people there or the people who will someday be powerful to like you, to like spending time with you. Um, and there are, you know, th there are pitfalls to all of that. You know, the the first couple of years I worked in the business, I worked with only white writers. Like there are all sorts of ways in which, you know, bias can cloud who seems to be doing a good job and whatever. Um, that has gotten definitely better over the years. I think TV has made a concerted effort to diversify rooms. And I, I think that's been a, a very positive thing. Still work to be done for sure. But, um, 
but yeah, it's basically like, who's cool, man? <laughs> like that's a lot of it. <laughs> I, I've worked with people who I thought were lovely, but you know, they didn't do much that ended up in the final script. People just liked having them around. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting thing. Uh, there are not really deliverables in the way that there are in certain jobs. Is, is, I mean, are those people who are just around cause they're good hangs or is there something like actively valuable in someone who can be sort of the, you know, the, the ping pong table off which the ball bounces? Yeah, no, that, that is absolutely a thing. There, there are people who can sort of, you know, there's a shorthand in, in sitcom running called the bad house number where it's, you sort of say not this, but something like this. And that, prompt something in somebody else's head and they say, for instance, maybe that, you know, ideally you pitch the solve for everything, but sometimes you can say, well, maybe this is the shape of what a solve would be. And then somebody else can fill it in once you've described the shape. So it's not, it's not like people just deliver complete answers all the time. It is very partial and incremental. So people, people who help in those increments are, are very valuable. Um, and most people I've worked with are very good and, you know, should be in the rooms they're in. Um, it's not like there are a lot of, but you know, occasionally you do work with somebody who it's like, oh, this guy is buddies with the main actor. Like that's happened to me before, and that's why they're there. And you just kind of keep going with it. Are, do they tend to be funny, or are they just buddies? Uh, they are not necessarily not funny, but uh, are they? Well, are they intentionally funny, or they are just a comic, or are they just comical? <laughs> Is, is, I guess, the better way of quite I, I would say some people I've worked with who've gotten in the door that way are, are very funny and, and earn their keep and are good. Uh, there are there are people who are, what? yeah, there are definitely some what, are, what is this guy doing here types. <laughs> I've not worked with anybody like that in a long time, but, uh, so, so what, but it happens how, here. How, maybe they're the muse. They're, they're, you know, if you're, hey, we need to, what would Dwight do? Well, right. What was Steve doing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, not to impugn anybody in the NBA, but I suppose you could, as a shorthand, you could call them Rambuses. Oh, <laughs> wow. Maybe they're great. I'm just saying. In terms of how the Rambuses are portrayed, it seems like Jeannie loves hanging with them. That's why they're powerful. Yeah. It's, that's, it's a thing. It's a problem. That's, yeah. a, it's, that doesn't, that's not so functional. Um, <laughs> I mean, that. Certainly functional is not the first word that pops into my mind. No, I mean, well, and, and there's, you know, this is, I think that sports management in general, um, and I, I think this might be a difference between TV and because it's sort of an inherent, like, there because the rules are sort of only the length of the episodes and what you can say on the network that you're on, or yeah. the, that there's a lot more sort of freedom. So... Um, it, it, in a way that makes it hard to make it too structured. Whereas yeah. like with all the technology and techniques and, and basically the, the number of things that have to come together um, for, you know, sports decisions to get made. Um, there's had to be more of a professionalization is the wrong word, but it's the one I use anyway for going that and we're still really in the process of this going from like what was complete like four dudes you know 
<laughs> wearing like the lampshade hats in, yeah. uh, around, around a poker table with the whiskey and a stogie making all the decisions, <laughs> you know, the very, in, 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 you know, Red Auerbach and his, and his two drinking buddies or whatever, making yeah. all the decisions. Like we're not, we're really not that far away from that, like temporally. Like I have like, you know, the, the, like, you know, the, the first general manager I worked for was like from that, that kind of that school. He's now like among the elder statesmen in the NBA now, but it's like not that long ago. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Can you let now, it, may I ask you a question? Oh, please, please. Well, so it, can you think of an example, and you don't have to name specifics, even though this is a compliment, you know, maybe you don't want to talk out of school. Um, can you I, think... I want to. I might not, though. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> can you think of front offices that really, you know, were sort of disinterested analytically, theoretically behind the times, but you still felt like that end product was impressive? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, that yeah, plenty. Yeah. Um, no, there's no, there's no, um, like I can give, I can give a specific example. Like, um, you know, Mike, Mike Budenholzer, who I worked with, uh, for you yep. in Milwaukee, like has a very analytically friendly style analytical, uh, but he is not particularly interested in metrics himself. Right. Like there are, you know, and, and, um, I think, I think that this is like pop has started sort of always given off the impression that he's a curmudgeon who doesn't care about this stuff. And I think it, that that's sort of done more for effect, but there are definitely people who, uh, who, you know, come to similar conclusions through other methods. Um, and even then, like I was, I, I talked to Chris Herring yesterday. Uh, and yeah. I, I don't know if you've read his, his book yet, which I highly recommend. Uh, I've I've started it. I have not yeah. finished it, but it's, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, there's a there's you know there's early part early in the book where you know like not to be flippant, but Pat Riley invents analytics. Like yeah. you would never, and you would you and, and not. I mean, there were coaches who did it before. Like Dean Smith was doing points per possession in 19 whenever. Um, but the the point still is that you know that he's not someone who you'd ever like necessarily think of now as being on like the leading edge of progressivity but like if it helps you win then people then a lot of people are into it like some people are like categorically opposed to it because who are you and why are you in my basketball gym right but, like the generally speaking the smartest people are like well or the like what well, is it will it help me win tell me how it will help right me win. okay what do you got to say i don't agree with you but that's interesting okay now i'll go back and and do my coaching thing and ignore you some more, but at least you gave me food for thought. Yeah. So it's, so, it's really so, interesting. Yes. Sorry. Well, the, the long answer is yes. And there are, and there are people who are very like interested in analytics who just, who don't have no idea what to do with it. Yeah. It, like the uh, people, this is a question that comes up a lot is, is sort of which, which organizations are most invested in analytics. And it's like, well, it's not, I mean, you can kind of look at media guys for the most part with the exception of, of you know Oklahoma City, who does like the Belichick thing and doesn't doesn't even doesn't right. list names and gives like you know strange titles. You know, vice president of insight and foresight was the uh, was was my favorite. Of, of <laughs> um, shout out to Rob Hannigan, um, yeah, the VP of insight <laughs> and foresight. But no, but so like you can look at the number of people and get like a rough idea of how much money teams are spending. But that's only sort of one axis, and the other one is. How involved are these are, are the people doing that in the whole across the whole suite of the decision making? Like, you right. know, there are teams that have very small groups that do very well with them, and teams that have very large groups that are using you know thousand dollar bills 
to like cigars, basically. right? Or at least, right. to, or at least that, that you get a nice high off of that, and so that would, that would probably be a, a more efficient use of, of that money. So, right. I mean, I, I would imagine that analytics are at the point where there are cases yeah, of teams uh, sort of. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just like, no, the, I, the, the, I, I, I cringe when the, the, I imagine analytics are at the point, oh, what could come next year? Uh, <laughs> well, I would think that they have, the idea of analytics has enough cachet in certain circles at this point that there are teams that spend on it for, like, signaling purposes. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, like, yeah. N- not just to improve the team, but so that they can tell you know, certain types of people around the team look at what we just spent on the fancy thing analytics. Um, so I think that I think that relative to football and hockey, I think that basketball and the NBA is further ahead in analytics than those sports. Right. I think the impression people get from the outside um, overstates that to a large degree because it's no longer acceptable to be a Luddite in public about basketball. Whereas, like, you can still get away with, like, you know, if, if someone's like, well, they never played the game, her, 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 when they're talking about, like, analytics and basketball, it's just like, shut up, Chuck. Um, yeah. But, it's, <laughs> but if it's, but, you know, that's still, like, you know, hockey man can still say that and it's okay. And, like, football man can, you know, give her, I mean. I mean, Sean McVay almost lost the Super Bowl trying to establish the run pointlessly. <laughs> so... I mean, yeah. So that's so that, that's another thing is that like we tend to because there are certain things that are most visible. Um, like I think I mean I think that like the play calling like yeah that probably wasn't super analytically indicated and certainly not like you know uh, Shanahan's uh, or as NFL analysts I know call them punta hands like approach <laughs> to fourth down was maybe suboptimal. Like there are in terms of like how they like acquire uh, how, how, how they identify talent like yeah the rams have been very good um, absolutely and, and, you know shout out to sarah bailey who now owns a super bowl ring congratulations to her um <laughs> but uh, it's it's a it's a small community and we, we you know we we very, we very much root for each other's success so yeah um, i mean the 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 thing in the nba that fascinates me right now is these teams that are just sort of going for infinite picks. Um, I just, it feels to me like, you know, obviously Oklahoma city is the extreme example. The Pelicans are sort of in that mix. Um, you just have to cash them in at some point. Like I, I, I feel like our art, do you feel like there are diminishing returns to what the thunder have done that? Like it almost felt to me like this year, Presti traded up to six to get giddy who he could have gotten later just to, prove that it was good to have those extra picks almost. I know that sounds weird, but it, it just, it feels like there is an outer bound past which that, that currency has to have diminishing value. Right. I, I just, it's, it seems so crazy to me. I'm fascinated by it. But well, so it's, it, hmm. so this is the, this is sort of, this is an extension of, of the Hinky process. Basically. Right. It's not the picks in and of themselves. It's, how do you win a championship in the NBA? You have a top five player. That's right. You know, okay. You can do it if you have a top 10 or top 15 players and a lot of other really good players, but that puts you in situations like, you know, the one situation in recent memory where a team was really like, they didn't have, they probably didn't have any first or second team all NBA level players in that season was the, uh, the 2011 maps. Right. Um, 
you can argue about the the, the twenty fourteen Spurs, like with with where was Duncan, where was Kawhi, where was Ginobili, like relative to that. But both of those teams had a lot of very good players. I mean, Dirk right. was like right there, and like the Tyson Chandler that that the Mavs had was like you know was right was right there, and sort of the. Uh, we didn't quite understand the the value of sort of their rim protecting dive and dunk center, right? Um, at that point, but Tracy Taylor like was rude. so. Um, but other than that, like you need like you know look at teams that have you know other than that Spurs team, uh, what like you know they've all the teams have had one or perhaps two uh, top five players. You know, right? LeBron, LeBron Dwayne Wade was maybe for some of those Heat years. Uh, you know. Your team, then not your team, with Steph and then Steph and KD, <laughs> right? And then, you know, uh, the Raptors with Kawhi, um, and obviously the Bucks with Giannis. Like, that's uh, you know, so. But like predicting which of the guys in any given draft, or if there are even any guys in any given draft, will be that guy, um, is is difficult. And you know, you, if you need that to start with. Uh, for most teams, if you're not the Lakers, basically acquiring that guy any other way than drafting him is is pretty tough. Yeah. So you feel like it's th- their war chest is basically let's just you know so, let a thousand Pokashevskys bloom. Basically, it's yeah, not yeah. something they're ever going to convert into, and nor should they. Like Bradley Beal, they're just going to keep going for really high ceiling guys, and they know they have so many chances that they can afford to keep. Well, trying, what, even I mean, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is if they get that guy this year, and if you know, I don't know, is Chet Holmgren that guy? Is Paul Benchero? I don't know. Like, right. No, nobody knows nothing. But if they get that guy, and then they still, then those things can then turn into Bradley Beal, right? Or 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 the equivalent of Bradley Beal to play alongside the guy. So it is, and and. Do they do they take it a little far? Yeah, maybe. But um, like, what? Like, on the other hand, like, what's the point of Oklahoma City trying to trade for CJ McCollum to win twenty eight games? No, no, I absolutely agree with that. I, I just, I mean, it feels like the fundamental problem is is the idea of the Oklahoma City Thunder tenable? Because, like, even if you well, even, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm from I'm, I'm from Alaska originally. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, so that's a that's a fraught question. Of yes, no, should absolutely. The, should the Oklahoma City Thunder exist? No. Next question. <laughs> uh, but, that's, but that's you know that 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 ship has sailed. Yeah. No. I I mean that's one of my most biggest frustrations of the league to sort of tie the two pieces of this conversation together is I I love the NBA because I I think it is this is not the main reason I love it, but one reason I love it is I think it is the best league in terms of sort of macro storytelling. And I think the, the league's big flaw, I I have a very ambivalent relationship with the NFL. I follow it. I kind of think it's gross, whatever, but the NFL has 32 products and they push 32 products. The NBA has 30 products and they push like nine products. Um, And it's just such a, an interesting and tough challenge for, you know, obviously, you know, the Bucks challenge, um, quite well and you know like the grizzly challenge part of the bucks challenge was like people like they they tried to give the product away they're like exactly like this was this this was after i left the bucks but i still i get mad thinking about it still like 
it was the year after I left in the Christmas Day game. It's like the like I forget who they were playing, but they're, they they had a you know a marquee Christmas Day matchup. And instead of talking about hey this is like Giannis against LeBron or whoever they're playing, and instead it was like so where should Giannis go? Right. Like what the hell are we doing here? It's crazy. Yeah. Um, like I, the Jacksonville Jaguars are a nightmare of a team, but nobody is saying where like where is like portals. Right. <laughs> Nobody's saying where is Trevor Lawrence's career really going to start. Like, it is still accepted that the Jacksonville Jaguars merit our attention in a way that it is not accepted that even, like, you know, a storied franchise like the Detroit Pistons deserve our attention. Obviously, they are a very mixed at best bag to watch right now. But uh, the the league just lets franchises die on the vine in a way that I think is kind of the signature problem of the league. I, you know, I had this, I had this, this conversation with, uh, with uh, Ben Thompson of Stratechery, who's a big Bucks fan. Like, sure. He's from, he's from the area, uh, on the show a couple weeks ago. And like, we were talking about it basically exactly this. And the fact that like Paul George is not a household name is, yeah. a, is a pretty big indictment of like, you know, he's, he's from Los Angeles. He was a, a really interesting player on a very good team. Yeah, they were in Indianapolis, but still a very good team with some interest. And he's not like a dud as a personality, and has a, you know, a a photogenic, especially when he's younger, a, a exciting game. Very and fun guy to watch. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. And, no, yeah, peak I, Pacers. Paul George was yeah. was electric. So smooth. And then, like you know, from a from a you know a a broader consciousness standpoint, it's like, you know, like let's remember about this Pacers, Pacers team was Lance Stevenson blowing on LeBron's ears. Yeah, we're getting you know getting zapped by the monsters and that photo <laughs> that you know. Yep, and those and it's just like yeah, how could you not make this like young up and coming team that pushed LeBron to seven games twice? Yeah, like, how could you? I mean, anyway, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, but I mean the Knicks have to be on Christmas Day, so. What are we well, so you know one of one of the fascinating things about the NBA to me is that the superstars really. The superstars tell the story of the league. Like, even if the league was doing a better job of marketing all 30 teams, it's still the history is, you know, written by the winners, and the winners are determined by where the superstars go. Um, and part of the reason that, you know, I had been a Warriors fan for 22 years. Um, I had a blog about them. Like, I watched every single game of really? the, the <laughs> GoldenStateWarriors.com, baby. Um, I watched every game of the 2009-2010 season. Golden State which Warriors was, or Golden State Warriors? Golden State Warriors. Um, really? I'm not even, really? Yeah. Um, amazing. I watched every every game of Nelly's last year there, which was a, a kind of compellingly, nightmarishly yeah. unprofessional yeah. year. Um, I just looked it up. Monte Ellis, according to Basketball Reference, and you know, I know those are approximations, but this is not an overstatement, played 14% of his minutes at small forward that year. <laughs> because Nelly, it was, he was just pressing the small ball button. It's like he fell asleep on the button. So the C.J. Watson, Steph, Monte trio was on the court all the time. Um, so I love that team. I, I would have called C.J. Watson a small forward. I would have too. Uh, C.J., oh, his, his plus minus. Uh, C.J. was fabulous. Oh, I that. Yeah, that team didn't know who the good players were. Like, Anthony Morrow was there. He was effective. Monte was just dragging them down as much as I love them. But, um, you know, it was such a woebegone team, and then they got good, and it was so awesome, and it was so satisfying. But 
they won their title a year early. Like if you were doing the wrestling storytelling, it's like they won the title at No Way Out instead of WrestleMania. Like they had just not been good long enough. So their first title wasn't as narratively satisfying as it could have been. The 2016 was maybe the greatest storytelling the league has ever seen. Uh, but then they went crazy and they signed Kevin Durant and they ruined the league story for two or three years. It was crazy. So I, I had to leave for, out of narrative principle reasons. I just didn't care for it. They, they, beca- they became an overpowered Mary Sue. And so you had to. That's right. You, you had the hipster reaction to them and, and, and ran away. That's right. I, I, you know, one of the great things about LeBron is he is a very good macro storyteller. He was on the Cavs, went to the Heat. People hated how he did it, obviously, but he turned it around, got people to like that, then went back to the Cavs. That was all amazing. The Lakers has not been my favorite thing, but I get it. It's the Lakers. It was a big story. I think that Kevin Durant, who is, you know, one of the greatest players of all time, that is not a language he speaks at all, and it will hurt how he is remembered. Um, He went to the Warriors. It was, it just felt wrong. He won two finals MVPs that people would rather kind of forget about. He then decided, I need my own team. I'm going to move to New York, which has the best, biggest, and most desperate fan base in the world. And he chose the other team. Crazy. He chose the fake team that doesn't even have any colors, so no children will ever like them. So the Brooklyn Nets are now this superpower that nobody even really cares about. Uh, He just... He doesn't know how to tell an NBA story, and it's a shame. I mean, that's that 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 the, picking the Nets over the Knicks is a little like as a failure of storytelling. It's a little bit unfair, given like some of the obstacles that there would be to winning with the Knicks. Oh, absolutely that that would have been the harder job. Yeah. But I mean, there's a reason that it went viral. That you know, fans were saying, Kevin Durant, don't you regret not choosing the Knicks when the Knicks were like five and three at the beginning of the year. Like there is just a wellspring of love there that he could have accessed. Yes. Bing bong. Um, I, I mean, it was, it was the right like basketball decision. And, you know, he, he's all hooked up for all of his outside gigs and stuff, but just, there are not millions of people who will cry with joy. If the Nets win one of these championships, he just, uh, it, it's just a, a fascinating thing to me that, the stories of the league have been so good, and then this guy came along. He's he's sort of uninterested in those stories, but he's so good that he might be the one telling the stories anyway. I, so I have I've, I've had, I have a theory about Kevin Durant, and I'm going to lay this on you. Let's I think it. he is, from a personality standpoint, he is the most normal human being of NBA superstars. <laughs> I think that's totally possible. Yeah, like, I think that might be right. You know... Getting petty spats on Twitter and, and, you know, just like, you know, I'm making a lot of money, but I hate my job. And like, this is either, there's so much about him that is just like, like, very, I, I find him very relatable in that way, other than being, you know, a 6'11 basketball like anomaly. I, I agree. I, I, I kind of love it about him. Like, even sometimes people tweet at him to, like, please stop responding to people and doing this stuff. And he responds, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> Kevin Durant is all of us. <laughs> like, God love him. <laughs> yeah, even though, like, even though I've, I've occasionally, like, gotten, like, strays from that, such as that, like, I was, if you remember the, uh, who, <laughs> who wants to look at a chart when we're talking about ball? Like, I was right. tangentially involved in that conversation. Right. Fair enough, Katie. 
Um, <laughs> but no, I love him. I, but I just I love I love watching teams rise, teams with stories, teams that have something organic to them. I mean, you know, I think obviously both you and I are biased, as you are an alumnus and I am a fan. But the Bucks title felt good in a way that not every title feels because it was a city who hadn't had one in a while and they watched a team grow. You know, Giannis and Chris were fighting for a rotation spot seven years ago and now they're the top two on a champion. Um, And I just feel like that doesn't mean everybody has to stay with their first team for their whole career, but stories like that are great. And, you know, the superstars have the power to tell the story of the league. I think they should. I will, you know, side with the players over the owners every time, but that does mean that players have a responsibility to tell good stories with their moves. And, you know, Durant hasn't, Harden hasn't. It's getting a little messy out there. God bless Steph for sticking. Well, I mean, it, it, I mean, I think that, that the problem isn't so much, you know, this is, again, this is something that the talk, I've talked with a number of people about in, like, kind of the uh, NBA-adjacent media landscape. It's not just that, like, that they like the move itself doesn't tell a story. It's like they just actively don't want to tell the story. And yeah. it's like that's you know, you know, to get to get all the way back to Matt Weiner, that's what the money is for. Like, yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, it's it's there there is um there it does seem like at a certain point there has been um everyone has sort of been pursuing their own narrow self interest. And this is yeah. you know, it's his players, his teams, his coaches like that we like you know my one of my you know if if I was going to do a, a, a NBA media commentary podcast the, the name of the podcast would be what the fuck are we doing here Cause yeah <laughs> like like it's 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 you know this is and this is something that like I you know I kind of thought on before I went on the inside then when I went on the inside it's like wait why are we doing that we're getting no advantage from that and it's basically just like the people who give us money want to know more and get and have interest and we're like no not that way yeah, no, we, don't, we don't want that. We don't, and it's just like, like, okay, who cares if someone knew who worked out first in a draft workout? Like yeah, that's, there's no like, this, like, it's not intelligence that we're giving up. That's trivia, but it's trivia that fans will like. You know, they want to start learning the backstory of players who might end up on the team because that gives them a better connection to the team, and then they'll come and buy beer. Yeah, this is, <laughs> you know, it's 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 it it, it it the through line for these things is not difficult to see. But it seems like we, we everyone's so five inches in front of their face. That yeah, we kind of lose sight of that. Absolutely, and that, and that is that is I think that is of a piece with the with the, the narrative. It's like, well, uh, tomorrow if we had to pick put a game on tomorrow, it doesn't matter how good the Knicks and Lakers are. If we play the Knicks and Lakers play each other, the ratings will be great. Yeah, it's like, but okay, but then we're watching, you know. Austin Reeves and Julius Randle, oh. mano a mano. Oh, Let's so. Go. The- the Lakers really, they they have, like, the eerie calm of a character right before they do something really horrible in, like, an action movie or something. <laughs> like, they, they, Russ's sort of smile right now just feels like there's such a darkness there. I don't know what went why, wrong. It's why, like they're... Well, why, there's a very last season of Game of Thrones feel. Yes. Oh, like, yeah, no, like, there, there's like, like this existential oh, yeah, gloom Russ, or something. Russ can't shoot is sort of the same thing, I suppose. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, and then the dragon's dead. Um, <laughs> spoiler, sorry, spoiler. 
Um, we were so in my last year of the Bucks during the playoffs was like the the final run of Game of Thrones, and every Monday morning I would drop into the film room, and me and a couple of the film guys would just like bitch in, incessantly about like how terrible this show has gotten um, because it has. Um, it, but, it was tough. It was tough. I was tough I was an apologist through the penultimate season, the last season. I there was nothing I could do. It was yeah, just bad stuff. As as someone you know, as someone who read the books, and it was very clear once they got past the books that they didn't know why people had liked the books. Yeah, it was yeah. like you know, right? Like, like it or not, like sort of George Martin's sort of it was almost a Newtonian kind of universe in which, like, you know, so a thing gets put in motion and it has elastic collisions, and yep. then those have ripple effects, which are like. You know, de- like determined by certain like laws of the universe, and yeah, like that, and that was like the motivation for like the chaos that ensued and different things bumping into each other. Then it was just like, ah, let's just like throw throw shit on the screen and it'll be cool. So, it was brutal. Yeah, my um, my uh, the thought experiment I think about most with the league, um, and it will never happen, and it's very possible that it shouldn't happen for reasons that I am not smart enough to think of. Are, I just would really be fascinated to see a league without the individual max, or at least a league with the individual max raised to something like 55% of the cap. Because right now, guys really are incentivized to find two of the other best players in the world, go to the biggest, coolest city, and just camp out there and win all the championships. Guys are incentivized to make the league kind of ugly and tilted. If you made it so that guys could have their own little fiefdoms, and, you know, take up 60% of the cap. Not everybody would do it, but I think it would at least make things a little interesting. And small market teams would have a thing that other teams couldn't offer, which would be like, we'll give you 60% of the money, which, you know, the Knicks don't have that room anymore. The Heat don't have that room anymore, et cetera. I would be interested to see how that would work. And I'm curious to hear how you think that might not work. Poorly. It would work poorly. No, because okay. basically, no, basically what happens is, okay, LeBron gets 60% in L.A., Giannis gets 60% in Milwaukee. They need other good players to come play for the minimums. Who wins there? Right. Like, like you know. So I do now, so this is, this is like, um, you know, to get into sort of my backyard a little bit. I will say that the 35% max is actually pretty interesting. Um, 25% max is probably too low. Because right. it, 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 it sort of plays into what you're talking about. 35% max, it's actually like only a couple of guys a year are worth that. So if you start slinging those around, you get yourself in trouble pretty quick. Right. So you really do, like, the Nets are on, like, you know, the 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 the, the idealized version of the Nets were kind of, like, the outer limits of, of like, how, I don't want to say bad, but how not quite top players all three guys can be and have it be workable. Right. You don't have to, you don't have to go very far down from a, you know, everything else aside, like, and we can, you know, that's a whole other podcast, um, about the available standpoint. Like, he is not worth the 35% max. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's a weird thing where the, the max, the exact max level is at a point where it actually gets some guys overpaid because, like, the the designation max is like this tractor beam. Right. right. Um, like if there was a 50% max, I think 
you know, John Walls might get a little less because it's like, well, you're not getting that. So let's figure out what you right. are getting. So it's like, you know, yeah, it's like, ah, you know, you're right. If, if his max is like 27 a year and like you're offering 25, it's like, how about 27? How about 25? How about 27? How about 25? Right. Fine. And then like, just, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's fine. It's whatever. That, that there, there might be a little something. There might be a little of that. You're right. But I do think that maybe if you bumped like each of the, like you going from rookie, going from 25 to 30 and like mid-career from 30, 35 to 40, I think you probably in theory get most of what you're talking about without like putting yourself in the situation that makes that A, makes the smaller markets unviable, and B, puts the best players in a position to screw themselves out of good teams. Right, like yeah, I think... A, that's, the yeah. Thing you're, that's the thing you're worried about, is, like, is it competitive, like, from a standpoint, you know, the, the you know, if with, without Andre the Giant, is Hulk Hogan a star? Right, <laughs> right, no, yeah. exactly. And so if it's like, well, he beat up on Brutus the Barber Beefcake again, it's just like... So you need you, the other teams do matter. Like the, this is sort of a, a weird dynamic of at least the American style of sports league, is that um, like they are competitors, sort of, but also partners, much more so. Yeah. And so I think that we focus so much on the competitive aspect that and try to solutionize to that that in ways that are completely sort of antithetical to the operative. It's just like. Like, okay, people all in, you know, for in matters of like, you know, individual liberty and player choice and blah, blah, blah. The draft is blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, right. but the draft makes everyone a lot more money. Right. Like, so what are we, like, what are we talking about here? Like, right. you know, I'm, I'm, I am sort of, I'm anti-abolishment of the draft. I think the draft should be longer, to be honest. Um, but that's not because I think it's having a viable league, which is why we all have jobs. So, yeah. Um, no, I think that's right. I mean, I yeah, I think there are a lot of like I, my personal politics don't marry neatly onto what I think is good well, for the but, league. No, but it's so but it's it's also it's just like, you know, the the you know, when I worked for the Bucks, I wasn't like from a business standpoint, I wasn't competing with the analytics people from for the right. Bulls. I was Absolutely. competing with the analytics people from the Packers. Right. <laughs> you know, more so. Like we like, you know, that like not really. I mean, that's that, that's sort of a a side thing, but just in terms of like where where the money is. Like I'm competing against Marcus Theaters and Summerfest and and the Packers more than I am like the other NBA teams in terms of like a business standpoint. Yeah, so that that that's one thing that does make it a little bit weird. Yeah, I, I would just be interested to see a different suite of problems with stars. You know, there was yeah. a brief period where the salaries started getting really big, and there was no individual max where. The amount Kevin Durant got paid bothered other stars. Um, it was, that's I mean, a, it's Kevin Garnett, and it was like, yeah. But then, I mean, that was. I mean, we can go back and like, you know, it wasn't just the amount that the, the some stars were getting. It was the amount like Jim McElvain was getting paid. Bothered, oh, absolutely. Bothered, bothered Sean Kemp and like. Absolutely. Right. So even though there is sort of the unwritten rule in the NBA, and maybe this is maybe kind of the individual max has like brought this and sort of the the, the more tiered. Uh, structure of salaries has brought this back more is like you never worry about another guy's money like yeah. okay I should be paid more but it doesn't mean I think that you owe me money it's just like good for you like there was like you know there were situations where um, you know been involved in where it's just like um, okay I want what he got 
plus a little more because I think I'm better than him. Right. And they're teammates. But it's not like it's not like you're mad at your teammate for getting money. It's just like, but I think I'm better than him. So I want he, – he got $12 million, I want $12 million in $1. Right. <laughs> just, just because. Like, the, like just to so, – so that we can look at each other and know that we all know that I'm better than him. Like that well, that – yeah, I, I, I feel like it would be – it, it probably would be bad in ways that I am too dumb for, to project again. But I, I feel like some of that would be healthy. Like, you know, there was a year three years ago where the highest paid player in the NBA was Mike Conley. And nobody could really be mad because that's just what Max's dictate. That's how the math happened to work out. Um, well, also, but, Mike Conley had a lot of, you know, best player never to be in an all-star, which was you know, true um, at that time. Right. He, he had a lot of goodwill. If it had been like... I don't know, if it had been like Dion Waiters or something like that, <laughs> right. then it would have been, I don't think it would have right. gone as well. Right. Yeah, I would just be interested to see, I, I do think there are some guys for whom that would be a pissing contest, and the a potential positive byproduct of that pissing contest would be more superstars by themselves on teams, because they would insist on such a big percentage of the cap that maybe there would be fewer super teams. And maybe guys would even stay with their teams more because their teams would be like, look, I know New Orleans isn't where you were planning on being, but we'll give you 60%. Nobody else can do that right now. I don't know. I would just be curious to see how it went. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thought experiment. And, and I, you know, I've, I, every time I go through it, I come out, on the, I, I come out in favor of an individual max at some level that we, yeah. can, we can argue about like, where that should be. But that's like... Oh, it's a, yeah. That's for uh, uh, people to figure out, not me. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually argue for the abolition. And the truth is, the way union dynamics are, um, they will never and probably should never say we want you know twelve of us to drown out what the other five hundred of us can make. We want twelve of us, including the five of us that make up the negotiating committee. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I. <laughs> it is a funny thing when superstars uh, run the union. I'm sort of like, you know, Chris Paul well, it's, it's, got himself a little paid. <laughs> so, but it's it's like the the union leadership right now is like Chris Paul and Jalen Brown and Bismack Biombo. Yeah, so that's that's right. I feel like I feel like we have good like you know representation up and down the the pecking order there. Yeah, Grant Williams is big. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. No, I think that is all healthy. I mean, this is all. Every, every, I, I love the league. This guy's favorite player, Grant Williams. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, he um, his, his, his parents work for NASA, and he loves to play Settlers of Catan. So it's just, yeah, one, one of us, except like tall and good at basketball. <laughs> there, there really is a, a rise of nerdy players. Jared Allen. Jared there Allen, are a lot of Jared yep. Brown. Uh, maybe and, and maybe that's maybe we're going to get past this. And last thing we should talk about before I. I should probably let you go because I have to run to, the, to my next thing because I sure. am, as always, overscheduled. Um, <laughs> um, is that like maybe we're going to get past the point where this is still something that comes up all the time and you like, like the anonymous scout bullshit you see for like NFL is like, right. oh, does he love football? It's like, well, Jared Allen likes to build computers. Does he really love basketball? Yeah. I don't know. Jared Allen seems like he pretty, pretty enjoys basketball a lot. Uh, uh, Jalen Brown doesn't. It doesn't seem like his interests outside of basketball have gotten in the way of J- of Jalen Brown making himself into a much better basketball player. Like, yep. could not dribble when entered the league. Like, literally from a statistical standpoint, one of the highest turnover players ever to <laughs> one of yeah. the turnover players ever to be like you know get get be considered that high in the draft. And it's, 
and is you know maybe still a little loose with the ball, but is now like you know a you know easily an all-star level player. So it's not like his the fact that he is is uh, has other interests does not seem to have gotten in the way of of him you know working on his craft. So yeah. maybe maybe we can only hope that that sort of like must eat glass kind of um, demand might be going away a little bit, which would be good. Because then maybe we get to, we get players that aren't like afraid to show like you know actual personality instead of like curated rise and grind personality. Yeah, I, I mean I think a real trace, trailblazer in this regard is Chris Bosh, right? Uh, you yes. know he was was the guy who and he got a lot of shit early on. You know it, it's good that he won championships. There are a lot of roads his career could have taken where he wouldn't have, and then maybe feel historically underrated. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, but it does feel like the sort of league consensus now is we like that guy. That guy's awesome. And that's great because, you know, he was a coder. He was a dork. Um, he was, you know, sensitive and interesting and unexpected in all these wonderful ways. Um, so I, I think that uh, we live in the world Chris Bosch made and we're better for it. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't possibly think of a better way to end from where we started than, than on Chris Bosch. Um, the, oh, and this is, I, I kind of, as a lark, asked you to come on, and this has been great fun. I have no idea what we talked about. Nor do I. Nor do I. So That means uh, you did it right. Yeah. That means, so that means, uh, can, I, can, can we do this again sometime? Absolutely. I would love to. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great time. Thanks for having me, Seth. Yeah. Take care. You too.